The seventh conference offered on Friday morning brought to light encounters that Jesus had with particular women in the Gospels that reveal God's ways in unique and invaluable ways. These women include the sinful woman in the house of Simon the Pharisee, Mary of Magdala, the sisters Martha and Mary, the Samaritan woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the women at the cross of Jesus, and the women who were the first witnesses to the resurrection. So good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome. Hope you're feeling uh, rested by this time of the week. <laughs> Maybe you're a little bored. <laughs> so, but, let's see what happens. So this morning, I'd like to uh, focus our attention or invite our attention onto um, the many and varied encounters that Jesus has with women in the Gospels. Many of which are we're not, we get some details, but not the whole story. And so that leaves plenty of room for our imaginations. And I certainly invite you to let your imagination, imagination take hold. Um, it is, uh, I mean, Jesus is famous for maybe being more than a little revolutionary in his attitudes towards women for his time, although there's some controversy about how bad it really was. Uh, it may not have been as bad in Israel as it was everywhere else in the world. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was uh, a sense of equality. And there were certainly issues, big issues, uh, in terms of uh, women being oppressed and mistreated. For instance, um, Jesus has you know, th these two teachings that follow one another in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, one is about his teaching about adultery, where he says, you know, anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery. He follows that with his teaching on divorce, um, about, you know, you just can't, you, sh you know, even though the law says you can, you just can't. And yet you do. Um, both of which are, are misunderstood as, uh, you know, the inhuman and uncompassionate and all kinds of things. And yet they are powerful invitations to respect and dignity and against the um, objectification of anyone, particularly of women. And lust turns us into objects. And even though it may be the most natural thing in the world, uh, what it comes naturally to us is not necessarily what is sacred and holy and called, and we are called to something more, and Jesus calls us to something more. And yet there's this resistance in us to, wait, wait a minute, that's too much. His teaching on divorce um, had created, had, was contrary to a, a, a practice that had serious consequences for women, and some of the women that he will encounter. In, in his ministry are victims, powerful victims of the teachings on, on divorce. Perhaps most notably the woman at the well in John's gospel, the Samaritan woman at the well who purportedly had five husbands. And yet maybe the most likely the reality was her first husband divorced her and she was left at the mercy of men who could take her in and give her protection and sustenance and uh, some kind of affection until they were tired of her. And then she was dismissed. And, and so um, his teaching on divorce, his encounter with her, uh, don't always capture 
that she's not this loose woman who's running around all over the place that she's easily portrayed to be, but is a victim of a, of a, a system that turns women into uh, disposable commodities. And of course, Jesus is going to rail against that in, in every way, shape, or form. So Gospels have some, difference, some differences in the way they portray the very same encounters, um, maybe. And we've got to figure some of that out sometimes, and you can get kind of confused with that. Um, most of the Gospels, all three of the synoptics, kind of include pretty early in Jesus's ministry as one of his first acts of healing is the, the curing of the sickness of Simon's mother-in-law. Um, as he encounters Simon and in, the, in his opening ministry in Capernaum and is welcomed into Simon's house, um, his first thing is to, he's, his attention is called to the fact that Simon's mother-in-law is ill and he restores her to health and she gets up and waits on them, which is nice. Um, but uh, it also implies that Simon had a, if he had a mother-in-law, he had a wife, whom we never meet. I'm raising all kinds of interesting questions about who <clears throat> and what was the wife of Simon Peter invited into in this whole mystery of salvation? What role did she play? Where was she? What did she do? And I think, again, uh, sometimes our imaginations are, are challenged more than anyone else. Um, again, all three of the synoptics relate in some way, shape, or form the combination of Jesus being called by Jairus or the synagogue official to come to his home because his daughter is ill, his 12-year-old daughter is ill. And on the way there, Jesus encounters this mysterious woman from the crowd who just wants to touch the hem of his garment after she has exhausted her savings trying to be healed of an affliction that not only must have been incredibly debilitating and painful where you can't stop bleeding but rendered her consistently ritually unclean and contaminating everyone around her um, they all talk about her sneaking up behind him and reaching out to touch the tassel of his cloak. And he feels the power going out of him. Her faith is, is raised up as someone who um, exemplifies of what faith can do. And Jesus praises her for her faith. And her, her faith heals her. But it's, a, it's not a, in, in a sense, she's, she's relegated to expressing her faith in a secret way, in a hidden way. Yes, she becomes visible. But hidden in shame, she has to reach out for healing. And there may be something there that, that speaks about uh, how women are, are invited or called or forced to exercise faith and express faith, sometimes in secret rather than openly. That's something like that. Um, I think all three of the Synoptic Gospels tell the story of the mother of Zebedee's sons. Um, who may be Salome, who may have even been the sister of, of Mary, the mother of Jesus, we don't, we don't know. But at one point in the ministry of Jesus, it is she who approaches Jesus asking that her sons be given positions at his right and his left hand. And that may not be fair because it's pretty, all the synoptic gospels kind of suggest, James and John put, it up to her, put her up to it. <laughs> um, she's not necessarily just advocating for her sons like a good Jewish mother. 
um, she may have actually been uh, complicit or uh, enlisted by her sons to do something that they knew they would never get away with. And the, the other 10 don't let them get away with it. But it does evoke the teaching about this is not about places of honor. The place of honor in this ministry, the place of honor in the reign of God is not exalted. It is in the lowest place, the humble place. Um, and so there's an invitation to turn everything over. Um, and all of the Gospels have a story about a woman anointing the feet of Jesus with very expensive aromatic perfume or nard or something. Three of them, Matthew, Mark, and John, located in Bethany. And John has the clearest uh, um, chronology of that is that it follows the raising of Lazarus, immediately follows the raising of Lazarus and is Lazarus's sister Mary, who out of sheer gratitude as they are hosting Jesus to dinner after he has raised their brother from the dead, Martha is serving at the table, Lazarus sitting there wondering what on earth just happened to me and why am I here? Um, and uh, you know, this is nice, but maybe it was better off before I, would, I came back, but here I am. And Mary enters in with the very expensive nard and wordlessly, as Mary famously is wordless, she makes this extravagant gesture and such an extravagant gesture that she's scandalizing some of the, of, the, of the disciples that are there. That's an incredibly expensive uh, jar of ointment that you've just shattered and are pouring it over his feet. But one of the great lessons of this is, can there be a gesture that is too extravagant? to acknowledge what has been done for us in the gift of life, in the gift of risen life, in the gift of, of being called into communion with each other and with all of creation and with the very creator of the universe. It's these extravagant gestures that show up a couple of times, particularly in those things that, that sometimes to me as a, as a man, watching this happening, I am embarrassed by them because there's no way I'm doing that. And yet Jesus allows them to happen. He praises Mary for that, despite the protest that something more practical should have been done, like maybe we should have been made a donation to the local food bank rather than breaking a jar of perfume and having your feet washed. Maybe we should have opened a, a, a scholarship fund to educate educate dead men or something like that. Um, no, it's it's a it's this extravagant gesture that has no value whatsoever except it has infinite value. And maybe there's something incredibly powerful and deeply feminine about the idea that sometimes a gesture that has no practical value whatsoever has infinite value, an infinite meaning. And he's stepping away from the practicalities of life and the problems to be solved and entering the great mystery that is incomprehensible. 
can only be responded to with an extravagant gesture that has no practical value whatsoever. Maybe there's something to that. I don't know where I would ever do that. I haven't really found that. But maybe there's something to that. Luke's gospel tells that story in a very different way. We assume that they're the same story, or maybe they're two separate stories. But Luke's gospel has this extravagant gesture by a woman coming from the woman who's known as sinful. We heard the story last night in the reconciliation service and read it and had it proclaimed that Jesus has gone to the home of Simon the Pharisee. In, in other synoptic gospels, it's Simon the leper, whatever that means. Simon's in there. And uh, actually, this is something I, because, you know, the picturing that scene has always been a little confusing. Like, wait a minute, you're in somebody's house and strangers are just barging in and interrupting the meal? How is this working? And I've read some things about that. And that these kind of gatherings were a little bit more open than maybe what we would have. But you may have noticed, I did, and noticed it maybe for the first time and after 50-some years of looking at that scripture um, very often, that Jesus is invited to the home of Simon the Pharisee. And this is a formal dinner. This is a, this is, you know, um, it's their version of a high class dinner party, which meant that they, and it says Jesus reclined at table. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you lay down and eat, but apparently this was, this was the way you did it, especially if you were having a, a luxurious meal with a very special guest of honor and everyone is supposed to be honored as a great guest. And so the table would be set up and the guests would be reclined, prone, you know, with their faces in their food and their feet, their feet out in the back. And then it says that the woman comes up behind Jesus. So she doesn't come to him face to face. She comes around behind him, finds his feet among all the other feet that must have been sticking out there, which is... Sometimes our imagination can get a little crazy, but that'd be an interesting depiction of that scene. If, you know, instead of Jesus's face, <laughs> we just see feet <laughs> sticking out of the table. She comes up to Jesus's feet and cries and washes them with her tears, dries them with her hair, and then anoints them with, this woman has an alabaster jar of perfume. Which, you know, raising all kinds of questions. Where'd she get that? Who was she? Where did she come from? What's she doing with an alabaster jar of perfume? And all the suggestions are that this woman is, is a prostitute of some sort. And maybe the alabaster jar of perfume was one of the tools of her trade. Maybe she wasn't a low-class prostitute. Maybe she was a prostitute for the upper-class men of the, of the town many of whom may have been at that dinner party. And they didn't want cheap perfume, they wanted expensive perfume. Maybe it had been a gift to her from one of her clients who may have been at the dinner party. That's kind of an interesting little thing to imagine. But as I see that scene and it's, it, you know, and yes, it's, it's like, where did she come from? And the whole dialogue between Jesus and Simon is profound and beautiful and um, simply indicates that, you know, her extravagant gesture is her attempt 
to somehow match the extravagance of compassion and love that she has experienced from Jesus. I assume that. Something tells me she, this was not the first time she encountered him. It wasn't just his reputation that drew him to the home of Simon that night. But it, we don't hear the backstory. Where, was the, where, where did her relationship with Jesus begin? How long did it last? What happened in it? My imagination only takes me to the, the, the lines that are in the synoptics that Jesus um, was a, you know, his, his place, the place where he found his people were with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and the sinners, the outcasts. He had his circles of disciples whom he had to teach. But when Jesus went to relax and have fun, he went to parties and parties with people who, for whatever else they were up to in life, knew how to party <laughs> and could have a really good time. Um, but it, it also seems that at these parties, he was not that interested in, in drinking and, and all the other things that parties have, have involved in them, um, but that he was encountering these people. And somehow I imagine that this, this woman was at one of these parties that Jesus was at and had some kind of an encounter with him. Maybe it was a long conversation. Maybe it was a, a moment where she was able to pour her heart out and be received by him. Maybe she never said a word. I don't know. But I just imagine that somehow or another, he did something, he said something, he indicated something, he communicated at a, at a, a level that I'm not sure I can imagine in all, any of my professional capacities, communicated to this woman that she was known. Her real true self was known. Not whatever mask she had to put on to survive. Not whatever anyone had been telling her was true of her forever. But that in this encounter with Jesus, she experienced that he knew her. At her depths, underneath whatever shame, humiliation, bad choices, good choices, practical choices, Underneath all of that, there was the child of God. And that he communicated this to her in a way that never had been communicated before. And she heard it. It may have been, again, it may have been a 30 second encounter. It may have been 30 minutes. Maybe it was a long conversation. But in my imagination, something happened to that woman in, her, in the presence of Jesus and in an encounter with Jesus in which she doesn't necessarily know anything about him other than that he, he, 
he not only understands why I'm the mess I am, he understands I'm so much more than the mess that I've made or that has been made of my life. He has found my essence. He has found the depths of my being. He has found my true self and has communicated that it is beautiful and loved and eternal and worthy. And I don't know, it, this, somehow or another, this encounter, which may have been days or weeks before this moment in the house of Simon the Pharisee, but somehow or another, this, this just kept welling up within her. And she hears that Jesus is, is in town again. And planned, not so planned. It's a pretty risky, challenging thing. But she puts herself out where she's going to be judged and ridiculed and laughed at and put down and shoved aside everything she's used to. Only on this night, none of that is going to stop the person that she now knows that she is from responding to the one who knows her in the most extravagant way she can muster. Simply to say, here's who I am. Here is who I am. And who I am is just bursting with gratitude, with extravagant joy, with appreciation, and with love. And sorry, a Hallmark card isn't going to do it for me. You get this whole treatment. And Jesus understands that. And he alone, it seems, in the room is the only one who's not uncomfortable. Everyone else is like dying a thousand deaths. Simon is utterly embarrassed. How could this happen? And Jesus uses the moment to teach us about how you respond to extravagant love with extravagant love. And extravagance is something that, um, I don't know, many of us have been kind of taught to back away from. You know, it talks a little bit about Greg Boyle's book, but the subtitle of his, of his latest book, The Whole Language, is The Power of Extravagant Tenderness. Extravagance is, is seriously underrated. Maybe badly misused too often. But there just may be moments where extravagance is the only authentic and genuine response we can make. And this woman responds to extravagant love and extravagant tenderness from her God with extravagant love and extravagant tenderness in an extravagant gesture that speaks, that hopefully speaks for so many of us who could never bring ourselves to be that extravagant. So maybe let's let her pull out from us whatever extravagance we might be able to 
to muster in response to the extravagant love and forgiveness and compassion and mercy that our God has shown to us. So there's that, that story. And I think Mary, um, the sister of Lazarus, is doing exactly the same thing in the story that parallels this in, in John's Gospel. How do you say thank you for having your brother raised from the dead? Well, there aren't a lot of precedents in the etiquette books <laughs> to teach you what's the right bouquet of roses to buy. <laughs> what's, the, what's the right dessert to serve? <laughs> Apparently, the right way to respond to the raising of your brother from the dead is to get a very expensive jar of, of perfume, break it so that the smell fills the whole house, anoint the feet of the one who raises him, dry them with her hair, and say absolutely nothing, but just let the smell and the sight and the sound, and particularly the smell of the aromatic nard, speak for us. How else do you say thank you? The only closest thing I can I, I notice in, in the Gospels to this is, is, a, is another story, although it has no women in it, from what I could tell. Um, is, is, I just find it a striking story, and it drives me nuts that we that it's often put out as like this is the reading you should use on Thanksgiving Day because it's all about Thanksgiving. Like, yeah, maybe it is. It actually has. It is a lot about Thanksgiving. Um, it's more than that, but there is a, a lesson of Thanksgiving in it. And it's the story where Jesus heals the ten lepers. He's on the border between Judea and Samaria. And ten lepers cry out to him, asking for healing. And he tells them to go and show themselves to the priest at the temple, um, and then do whatever they tell you. And they start their way there, and they are healed. And they notice that they are healed. And nine of them keep going. And this is what drives me crazy about this reading you being used on Thanksgiving, is that they are accused of being ungrateful. No, they're being obedient. They're doing what they were told to do. <laughs> the one who returns is a Samaritan. And of course, he's free to return because he doesn't give two hoots about the temple and the priests in Jerusalem. <laughs> Could care less about them. But he returns to Jesus, and there he shows what gratitude looks like. He throws himself on the ground, praising God. This is the thing. I think sometimes um, you know, we get caught up in, in, in gratitude that it's, it's a transactional thing. You know, if someone does something nice for me, I have to do something nice for them. That's how I show my gratitude. If I receive something, I better send a thank you note. And as one um, priest that I knew many, many years ago, who's now an archbishop, but nonetheless <laughs> said, a thank you note is an investment for the future, <laughs> which anyone who works in development fundraising knows very well. But nonetheless, there's more to gratitude, real genuine gratitude, than the transactional, uh, here's a reciprocal gift, or here's a thank you note, something like that. There's something about the breaking of an alabaster jar of perfume and anointing feet and tears and hair and sensuousness about that that's just extravagant and embarrassing to everybody or throwing yourself on the ground just praising god expecting nothing more you know something about that gratitude and i think the samaritan leper showed that but 
even more powerfully, this penitent woman showed us what extravagant gratitude looks like and invites us to maybe be a little bit more comfortable about that. Um, see what else we have. Yes, we got um, another very interesting and puzzling encounter that Jesus has with women are with the sisters Martha and Mary. And they show up in, in, um, in the Gospel of Luke, and they show up again in the Gospel of John. And no one's sure whether they're the same Martha and Mary, but I'm sorry, how, what are the chances? <laughs> that there are two single women living together who are sisters named Martha and Mary, who are friends of Jesus somehow, or, or become friends of Jesus. It's a little bit out of sequence. In John's Gospel, they are the sisters of, of Lazarus. They live in Bethany. They are all friends of Jesus. In Luke's gospel, it doesn't say anything about that. So we might have to infer some of that. Maybe it was this encounter in Luke's gospel where they become friends of Jesus, even though Lazarus isn't in the picture overtly. Mm -hmm. And I've always had this, this image of Martha because the Marthas of the world drive me crazy. <laughs> no, and I've gotten a lot of trouble talking about Martha and Mary. Um, but I wonder, I think, you know, Martha, um, Jesus comes to this town, as Luke's gospel portrays it, comes to his town and, and Martha invites him to her house for lunch, which is a bit of a bold move. And in my imagination, sometimes the scene is everyone in town knew that Martha was going to do that and they were just getting out of her way because there's no, there was no, no stopping her, you know. So Jesus arrives in town, Martha elbows her way to the front of the crowd, you're coming to my house for lunch, and grabs him by the ear and drags him there. Um, all of Martha's way of encounter, Martha's way of inviting, Martha's way of come and be with me, even if it can be a domineering and controlling way. Um, and so there's Jesus in the house and Martha's sister there, and some people say the two of them don't speak to each other. That's why there's this conflict. Maybe they do, maybe they didn't. It's one of these family configurations that I talked about the other day that shows up in there. Who knows? Um, you know, what's clear, what's the details of the gospel are Martha is busy with all the details of serving, and Mary's doing absolutely nothing. Um, and I sometimes say, well, of course she's doing nothing. She knew better. <laughs> Had she tried to do anything, it would have been wrong <laughs> and would have been corrected. So the path of least resistance was to do nothing. Um, and even with that, she gets criticized. And there's this repartee between Jesus and Martha, which is uncomfortable. You know, really? What's that like? Is, she, is he putting her down? Is he you know, inviting this Mary's house of the better part? What on earth does that mean? What's, what's going on here? There has to be more to that story. There has to be. What did Martha say after Jesus said that to her? I'm sorry, a spoon flying across the living room comes to mind. <laughs> you know? um, maybe she does erupt in some kind of emotion. That's a whole mixture of all the emotions of anger and sadness and shame and fear. Maybe she's crashed into her own sense of utter inadequacy that she's trying to overcompensate for. Maybe all that's going on. 
Mary said, <laughs> maybe loving it a little bit too much. But maybe Martha, Martha, Martha explodes, maybe. And allows her true self to come forth instead of trying to be superwoman. She becomes vulnerable and um, scared and maybe a little sad. And maybe there's that moment where that's the better part. Maybe this encounter with Jesus freed Martha from the role that she had assigned herself in order to be who she really is. So we play the story out a little bit, this explosion. Martha is set free by, by this release of, of pent up frustration that she's trying to keep contained. This sense of, um, if, if ever I'm not completely and totally adequate, everyone will know I'm utterly inadequate. And now she's called out for her inadequacy and the opportunity for an encounter with the real Jesus happens. Of course, we don't get to see that. But I like to play the story forward where the explosion happens. There are lots of tears. There, are, there is great comfort. There is Martha finally being understood for who she really is. There is somehow or another Jesus deciding to help Martha in the kitchen which should be a frightening thing for all of us to think about. <laughs> and Martha actually lets him. And maybe Mary joins in. Maybe. But the real miracle happens when Lazarus, who's been hiding in the bedroom watching the Red Sox all afternoon, <laughs> decides it is now safe to come out and gather at the table. But maybe sometimes these these kinds of, of encounters with Jesus um, that are all meant to invite us to be truly who we are, not hiding under our masks like the penitent woman had to do in order to survive. But he notices who she really are, is. And maybe in that encounter with Martha and Mary, Jesus frees Martha to open herself up to her true self and let that self be loved instead of, of keeping it hidden under um, a facade of being super helpful and, and all, all that comes with that. And then we do have the woman at the well, Samaritan woman at the well. And, you know, sorry, these details just might matter more than we think they do. The well where Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman is the very same well where Jacob met Rachel and Leah and fell madly in love with Rachel. And this encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, um, you, know, he, he, I, you know, he's apparently breaking all kinds of rules, being alone with a woman. I don't know what, maybe, maybe there were rules about that. But certainly she was a Samaritan, and that was a problem. But he's there by himself. She's there by herself. He's there by himself because his disciples have gone off to buy food. She's there by herself because 
she's not allowed to come with the rest of the women to draw water when it's cool in the morning because they want nothing to do with her because of these five husbands thing deal going on. So she comes alone. He's alone. And they start engaging in uh, dialogue that ventures into profound and deep theology. Don't be fooled by the theology. They're flirting. <laughs> There's a man and a woman having a conversation that is revealing and all that sort of thing, but it's playful and it's back and forth. And in the process of this encounter with this woman being fully herself, acknowledging that she can't be with the rest of the women of the village because she's considered you know, sinful and unclean and an embarrassment to everybody. But she's being fully herself, and he's being fully himself. And they start to talk, and she, her report is, he told me everything about myself, which had nothing to do with the fact that she had, she had lived with five different men. In that encounter, he knew everything about her. I don't know, you know, who knows what he knew. Her experience was, he knows me. He sees the truth about me. And it's not what everybody else sees. He sees the truth about me. It's not even what I see. He sees underneath. Again, all the games I've had to play, all the roles I've had to assume, all the masks I've had to put on, the strong, funny, humorful mask that is painting, hiding an enormous amount of pain. Well, I didn't cry with him, I laughed. But he got it, he understood it. He knows who I am better than I know who I am. He's worth, he's worth my faith. He's worth my love. And she goes forth and tells everybody in town, come and meet someone who told me everything about myself. And she doesn't mean a list of her sins. And on the strength of her testimony, many others in that town had the same experience and encounter with Jesus. But he knew them. He knew her and turns her into an evangelist. And the, the, the last woman I want to highlight, um, the story appears in the Gospel of John. It's the woman caught in adultery. The story appears in the Gospel of John, and yet every scripture scholar says it doesn't belong in the Gospel of John. This is not written in the style that John writes, and it isn't. It's actually a, a story that, that makes sense. You can understand it. <laughs> can't understand anything else in the Gospel of John. But the story of the woman caught in adultery is crystal clear. Maybe really clear. My, my theory on that is that this was, of course, one of the stories that had been, been shared and passed down in the, in the community of believers, the stories about Jesus and the oral tradition that um, eventually get somehow compiled into these theological statements that we call Gospels. But there's stories floating around, collections of sayings, oral traditions. Um, one, one author I read talked about the, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And 
Before the Gospel of Mark was written, the only thing that seemed to be written down were sayings of Jesus, teachings. And that's all great. It's a little dry. But Mark started talking to people who had encountered him and starts hearing these stories of the signs and wonders and the miracles and the healings, which are a lot more interesting than parables and sayings that you scratch your head. And what on earth was he talking about? But though they're in stories of real encounters with real people in which people experience being set free from sickness and demons and all kinds of other things because of this encounter with him. The gospel comes to life. But the story of the woman caught in adultery floating around in the oral tradition and nobody put it in their gospel. Luke didn't put it in there. Everyone thinks it belongs. It should belong in Luke's. Um, but no, no one put it in their gospel. And I'm just kind of convinced that somehow or another, someday, the church gathered and looked at the Gospels and said, there's something really important missing here. This story about this woman needs a home. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been, you know, they had been printed long before and all that kind of stuff. It's going to be too expensive to put it in there. But John's was fresh. So this is about good scripture scholarship. I have nothing to back any of that up with. <laughs> Not a redaction critic, critic, but nonetheless, the story of the woman caught in adultery, the church insisted be in the canon of the scriptures. Even if those who compiled the gospels couldn't find a place for it. So it gets forced into the gospel of John. What a powerful story it is. The Gospel of John has all this tension between Jesus and the teachers of the law and the uh, temple officials and all that kind of stuff. And there's all this testing and testimony going on. Um, it's a trial, a long trial. And so they keep trying to catch him in saying something that will convict him. And he keeps giving it to them here, <laughs> nonetheless. But the story talks about how in order to test him, they bring a woman caught in adultery to him. Now, probably wasn't too hard to find her. They all knew where she was. Her partner isn't there, that's clear. She's the only one being condemned, but she's dragged out, not only objectified as someone who is probably a prostitute already being objectified, but now she's being exploited all the more. She's being used to test Jesus. There's no righteousness in any of this. There's no indignation that really probably wants to stone her. But they're trying to test Jesus. And of course, in the process of that, she's subjected to utter humiliation. The very definition of humiliation. She's made to stand there in front of everyone. Seen. Everything that every, all of us want to hide about ourselves is exposed to everyone. And they're clamoring for her life as they test Jesus. And it's the great dramatic scenes, you know, the writing in the sand, the looking up, um, let, let whoever among you is without sin cast the first stone, the silence of the crowd, stones dropping into the sand, one by one, they walked away until no one is left except this woman and Jesus alone. And then those, those words, which don't seem all that warm, there should have been a little bit more than that. Has no one condemned you? No, sir, no one. Nor do I condemn you. 
go and sin no more. There's, there's something that has no one condemned you. you know, actually, probably we all deserve to hear that more than we think. That was a, it was a staple when I was at Southdown doing group therapy. And whenever someone would, would really share the depths of their shame, and they can't look at anybody. And the group therapist would um, invite them, would you lift your head and look around? And what do you see? You see anyone throwing a rock? You see anyone condemning you? And never. No, no one is condemning me. Go and sin no more. So she goes. And we apparently never see her again. Okay, so get ready, because this is a revelation that has absolutely nothing behind it. <laughs> I think we do see her again. We just don't see her again in the scriptures. I think we see her again in the stations of the cross, not all of which are in the scriptures. And there's one station of the cross that isn't in the scriptures at all. And that's Veronica. I don't, again, I don't think this woman caught in adultery could show her face too easily and too freely. She didn't join the company of Jesus, but it's in John's gospel and it's getting close to the condemnation and the passion. And I don't think that while she didn't follow him closely, I don't think she ever took her eyes off of him and knew exactly what was happening to him. And somehow or another, on the day that he's being executed, she can't help herself. And again, one of the those great extravagant gestures that has no value whatsoever except infinite value. Veronica, AKA the woman caught in adultery, wipes the face of Jesus with nothing said between them. Except somehow or another, though it doesn't make it in the scriptures, it makes it into the stations of the cross. Veronica has a backstory. We don't know what it is. I just made it up. <laughs> I like this one. But somehow or another, these encounters between women and Jesus, the common theme that seems to come through that are different between his encounters with anyone else are extravagant gestures. Extravagant gestures of gratitude, of love, of hospitality, of comfort, of, of, of joy and welcome. Somehow or another, the women whom Jesus encounters in the gospel are teaching me about what extravagant gestures are, look like. And I'm not good at them at all. Not good at them at all, but perhaps there is something about the authenticity of our encounter with Jesus that invites from us something a little bit more than a thank you note. And maybe the extravagant gesture isn't breaking a sense of perfume and washing people's feet with your tears and drying them with your hair. Maybe there are other extravagant gestures 
extravagant gestures of forgiveness, extravagant gestures of generosity, extravagant gestures of, of, of thing, meant to obtain absolutely nothing except the infinite value of an extravagant gesture.